Well, I want to invite you to join me in the Gospel of Mark this afternoon. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Mark 2, 13 to 17. I want you to think with me for a moment about the physical health of the people in this room. And specifically, I I, I want you to think about a couple scenarios. Scenario number one, uh, there may be some of you in this room and you are physically sick in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's minor, maybe it's significant, and you're very well aware of the fact that you are sick. Uh, Maybe some part of your body has been absolutely screaming at you. Uh, you may be miserable. You're not trying to advertise that. You're not, you don't really want everybody to know, but truth of the matter is, is you are miserable. And you've had multiple doctor's appointments, this one and that. And in short, you're sick and you know it. And scenario number two, some of you might uh, be quite sick and have absolutely no idea. In fact, uh, you may think you're good. You may say, man, I, I feel great. I feel better than ever. And yet, while you feel that way, you could literally have a ticking time bomb in your chest and not have a clue. Or you could have stage four cancer and not even realize it. In short, you could be very, very sick and completely unaware of that. Have no idea. Such a thought experiment reminds us certainly of the brevity of life and that none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. We're not even in control of our next breath. We're going to look at a text today that presents really those same two scenarios. However, uh, the text does not focus on physical sickness, but on spiritual sickness. Nor does it imply that only some of us or a a few of us might be sick, but rather that every single one of us is sick. Everyone is spiritually sick, but only some recognize it. There are some of you sitting in this room today and I mean, if you're just being totally honest, you may sit there and and you know that you are a sinner. You're not arguing that. You're not sitting there thinking that maybe that's up for debate. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you're sick. You you know that. And, And in fact, you may just be really at the end of yourself with that. You may be so miserable and frustrated and feel like your your life is literally unraveling and unfolding. Maybe you even hate yourself. And there may be others of you sitting in this room. You're also a sinner. You are also sick, and you don't, you don't know it. Or you don't think that it's that bad. And whichever you may be, the message of this text is for you. It's for all of us. And what's at the heart of this text is that Jesus came to earth to save sinners. Big emphasis, all caps, on the word sinners. Mark two thirteen to 17, if you want to follow along. As I read, Mark writes of Jesus that he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus surprises us in two ways in this text. And the first surprise, we might say, it's for you if you are the person who you sit here and and, then there's no question. You know, you're a sinner. You are sick and you know it. Surprise number one is that Jesus calls great sinners to repent and to follow him and to be with him. And we have an example of this in verses 13 to 14 with a tax collector by the name of Levi. Uh, We also know him as Matthew. If Levi didn't think that he was a sinner, everyone else certainly did. Tax collectors were not liked in the time of Jesus, and for good reason. Uh, They were crooks. They were extortioners and bullies who made themselves rich by defrauding other people. Sounds like the type of person that you would really like and get along with, right? No. And Capernaum, where this scene is located, where Jesus is at at this particular moment, uh, was situated on an important trade route. It was a local customs post. Uh, Writers have said things like this. uh, Levi did not collect personal taxes on a person's wealth. I think that's often what we think about, uh, perhaps when we think about tax collectors. He collected custom charges on produce that was transported to and through Capernaum. Uh, These were the taxes on transported goods, which are uh, called usage taxes, custom duties, tolls, tariffs, that sort of thing. And the public distrusted and hated the local customs collectors because these men uh, worked for a very unpopular government. And they usually got a substantial profit by overcharging wherever they could. These tax collectors were universally despised for their dishonesty and their cooperation with the Roman authorities. They were considered to be traitors. One writer tells us that when a Jew entered the custom service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. Yeah, don't put a tax collector up there on the stand. He's worthless. You can't trust a word that comes out of that guy's mouth. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. The Jews were like, no, thank you. You can't be here. And in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended all the way to his family. Your dad's a tax collector. Too bad. Your life's going to stink. You get the idea. Levi was a corrupt man. And everybody knew it. And I would imagine that Levi was proud of it. I mean, this literally is his identity. He knew who he was, and so did Jesus. And Levi's story, I think, reminds us that Jesus sees and has noticed you. Look at verse 13. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. This verse sets the stage for us. Jesus is yet again out beside the sea, and He's surrounded by a crowd, as we've seen many times already in the Gospel of Mark. And surprise, surprise, Jesus is doing the thing that Jesus loved to do. He's back at it again, teaching and preaching, calling people to repent of their sins and believe in the Gospel. That's his message, chapter 1, verse 15. And as Jesus is uh, walking along beside the sea, surrounded by throngs of people who are enamored with him for this reason or that, A single character catches his eye of all the people there. Verse 14 begins, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. His eyes fixate on a single man. 
maybe there's someone sitting here today, and as I said, you're a sinner and you know it. You're sick and you know it. And I, I think just a very simple observation, Jesus sees and has noticed you. And Jesus knows who you are, and Jesus knows what you have done. Look at verse 14 again. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. One of the things that stands out here, and, and is often the case in the Gospel of Mark, is the terseness of the account. It's just short and brief, concise. Jesus saw Levi sitting at the tax booth. He knows exactly who Levi is. He knows exactly what Levi has done. And perhaps as Jesus looked into the eyes of Levi, perhaps Jesus' eyes pierced straight into his soul. Or perhaps Levi had been under great conviction and been miserable for some time. Life is not working. Who, what have I done with my life? Levi knows that he is a corrupt man and so does Jesus. Jesus as well, he knows who you are. Jesus knows what you have done. There is not a single thing that you have said, done, thought, or been that Jesus does not know about. Not a single thing. Nothing is hidden from him. Now, this is not uh, like going on a first date or a job interview. Maybe you're, you're, you're going on that first date with someone and you're excited and you think, maybe there's some potential here. Maybe I could just hide this little fact about myself. Put my best foot forward. I want to be really attractive to this person. Conceal those things about yourself that may not be helpful. Well, that's not the case here. Jesus knows it all. There is no, I'm just going to put my best foot forward for Jesus and hope he doesn't know about this, that, or whatever. Nothing is hidden from him. And yet Jesus wants you to be with him and follow him. Shocking. Mark records two words that Jesus spoke to Levi. Just this very short account, he says to Levi, follow Jesus wants Levi to come and to be with him and to follow him and, in fact, be one of his closest companions. This is shocking. I mean, if Jesus is in any way, shape, or form concerned about his public image, this is a huge mistake. In fact, it's scandalous. I wonder what the other disciples must have thought. Remember earlier in chapter 1, Jesus called uh, four other disciples at that time, four fishermen. Good chance that they had had some run-ins with Levi as they tried to move their fish to market. Any products that are moving, you're running into Levi. They may have completely and totally despised this guy. They may have thought, really, just no, please, no, 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 not him. No, he can't join our, our little club. And Jesus says to Levi, follow me. And the text records that he rose and he followed him. Jesus wants you to do that same thing. He wants you to be with him. And he wants you to follow him. You go, me? Remember, I'm the sinner, the one who's sick, and I know it, and there's no debate here. Me? Yes. Jesus wants you to do what Levi did, and to stand up, repent of your sins, and follow Jesus. Jesus gives you the same invitation to leave your old life behind, uh, there's just this beautiful picture in, in what happens in the nar narrative that Levi stood up from his tax booth and he walked away from it. What a beautiful picture. He's done with his old life of corruption and, and sin. Jesus Christ is his new master and his new Lord and King. Leave your old life behind. 
That's the invitation of Jesus. Leave it behind and rise and follow Jesus. The leaving and the following, uh, it's all happening simultaneously in this account. It's all in the same motion. It's a single act. That's really what repentance is. Verse 14 says that Levi rose and he followed Jesus. Uh, His new life meant that following in the footsteps of his master and to turn and follow Jesus was to leave a whole world behind. Levi once sat in sin there in his tax booth, but now he's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful reality. And if you're sitting here and you go, yeah, that's me. I mean, I'm, I'm not a tax collector. And I'd like to think that maybe it's not quite as bad as a Levi. But I know I'm a sinner. And I know I'm sick. And I'm tired of it. And this isn't working. Guess what? Jesus calls great sinners to repent and follow him. He's inviting you to do the very thing that he invited Levi to do. And you you should. This invitation is for you. It's for sinners. Uh, Just to be clear. What we see in Levi is not self-reform. He's not like, yeah, I sort of got to work this tax thing out and all its implications and all that I've got going on there. And I'm going to work on that. And I'm going to reform myself and then I'll go follow Jesus. He's not making himself a better person and then coming to Jesus. He's coming to Jesus as a wicked man. Simply put, his turn to Jesus was a turn from his old life. It's a single decisive act here. And that's what Jesus invites you to do. Turn to me and follow me. Also, it's not just that from time to time, Jesus calls great sinners to repent and follow him as one of the many, many things that Jesus is doing. It's the very purpose for which he came. And in the verses to follow, Jesus is going to express that. Let's just be really clear. Sinners like Levi, that's why I'm here. It's the very heart of what he does, the purpose for which he came, and we'll see that in a moment. If the first surprise is directed to you, if you're a sinner, you're sick, and you know it, then the second surprise with Jesus is directed toward you, if you're a sinner, you're sick, and you don't seem to know it. You don't seem to think that it's that bad. Surprise number two, Jesus came so that hordes of sick sinners might be saved. Emphasis again on the word sinners. Jesus came for sinners. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Uh, This next scene, uh, we're we're out on uh, on the seashore, walking along by the tax booth, and now, now we're in someone's home. And the next scene is a banquet. In a private home. And the select few details, and again, Mark is always just kind of short and brief and concise. But the select few details that the Bible draws our attention to here are remarkable. Starting with the location of the banquet. A quick reading of verse 15 might give us the impression that this banquet is in the house of Jesus. Maybe somewhere in Capernaum if he has a house. Or we've already been in the house of Peter in chapter 1. Maybe we're there. But we're not in either of those places. That's not the case at all. This banquet is in Levi's house. The large home of a very wealthy tax collector. I would assume it was large. Very wealthy tax collector who literally gained his wealth, who literally got probably that massive, really nice house on the hill through sin. Luke 5.29 clarifies 
It says, and Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Both Luke and Mark tell us about Levi's guest list. So we're in Levi's house. And who's on the guest list? Levi throws this great feast in honor of Jesus, who's who's now his new Lord and Savior and Master. And he invites all of his friends. The irony is that tax collectors didn't have any friends other than each other. And people who were equally despised by the rest of society and didn't care. Levi invites all of his old friends, and they're a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, wicked sinners. Levi's a friend of spiritual losers, if I could put it that way. Like, everybody, like these are the losers of the losers spiritually, at least in everybody else's eyes. And I bet that Levi just thinks that this is so great. I mean, you get that impression by what he does. I mean, one, the honor of having Jesus in his house. Jesus is going to come to my house and I am going to throw him this big feast because I love him. And two, getting to introduce all of his friends, people just like Levi, to Jesus. And Jesus could do for his friends exactly what Jesus has done for him. This is a special day. This is a great day. This is a big day in the life of Levi. I think it's probably worth pausing here to take in a few lessons from Levi's response to Jesus. First being that the greater you understand your sin, the greater you understand the forgiveness and cleansing that Jesus provides, the greater will be the extravagance of your love for Jesus. And that theme shows up again and again in the Gospels. Levi throws an extravagant feast for Jesus. They're, they're, they're laying down at these tables. Like, this is feast time. I mean, if you lay down at a table, would you be there for a short time or a long time? Like, these guys are there to stay. They're going to have a big feast. One day, Levi's concerned about his own personal wealth. All he can think about is himself, and he doesn't care who he wrongs to to get to the next level. And the next day, he's lavishing his wealth upon Jesus. He went from a taker to a giver overnight. Elsewhere in the Gospels, a prostitute wiped the feet of Jesus with her tears and with her hair. And Jesus in that story said this, He who is forgiven little loves little, Luke 7.47. And in that particular story, this woman's wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair and with her tears. And there's another man there named Simon who has done nothing for Jesus. And Jesus explains this woman who's wiping my feet with her hair and with her tears. She she gets it, Levi. She understands that she's a wicked, wicked sinner. She, She grasped what I have done for her. And the better you understand what Jesus has done for you, the more extravagant your love will be for him in every way. Also, a lesson from Levi, I think, uh, just really practically, new believers have a remarkable opportunity to introduce others to Jesus. We all have the opportunity to introduce others to Jesus. But I think Levi's story is a good picture of what happens when a person comes to Christ. They often have a chance then to introduce friends to Jesus. Levi's friends aren't, you know, like a bunch of Christians who are moral and righteous and good. They're all a bunch of tax collectors and sinners who he had been in business with probably for years. And Levi, though he left that whole world behind, he still knows all these people. 
and Levi decides to make the most of it, you come over to my house, there's somebody I want you to meet. And a, a, another reminder from Levi is that Jesus uses great sinners. Levi is otherwise known, as I mentioned, as Matthew. Well, who wrote the first book of your New Testament? A guy by the name of Matthew. A person's past before Jesus is in no way, shape, or form a detriment to being used in the hands of Jesus. Quite the opposite, really. And maybe you've come to Christ and uh, you look at your life and go, wow, like I wasted 20 years just, I mean, in all kinds of sin. And I come to church and I see people who are really good, you know? They seem like they have it together. Maybe they, they look like they grew up in a Christian home. And I'm just so far behind. I mean, I'm like 20 or 30 years behind. I don't, I don't even know the stories the kids know in the Bible class. Like the, the five-year-old kids know more than me. And what could Jesus do with me? Well, all kinds of things. Look at what he did with, with this guy named Levi. A person's past before Jesus is, is not a detriment to being used in the hands of Jesus. I think what all of us want to do is say, God, here I am. My sin, my past, everything, I'm, I'm here at your disposal. Will you, would you use me in great ways? Let's get back to the banquet in Levi's house. This whole scene, I think, very obviously highlights that, uh, as it's said elsewhere in Scripture, that Jesus is a, a friend of sinners. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining. And note the next word, just a small little word, with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Both verse, verse 15 and 16 draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus doesn't seem to be repulsed or appalled by these people, but rather he chooses to be in their company. And we might ask, well, is that okay? I mean, Psalm 1? You're not supposed to be like hanging out with sinners. Is that okay? Because inquiring minds want to know, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the short answer is this, because Jesus came for sinners. Not only is Jesus the friend of sinners, Jesus goes on to explain that he is the physician of the sick. That's how he self-identifies himself. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with these people? There are some scribes of the Pharisees who I would imagine are probably standing somewhere outside the home of Levi. Maybe he's in a gated community. I don't know. But they're, they're, they're outside. Like, they're not going to go in there. They're not going to be hanging out with Levi and tax collectors and sinners in his house. And they find Jesus' disciples, and they ask about the company that Jesus was keeping. And they're looking for an explanation of this scandalous behavior. These men wouldn't have been caught dead feasting with tax collectors and sinners. They're appalled. They look down their noses at these reckless law and tradition breakers who they categorized as sinners. Like, these people don't even care. 
and Jesus is eating with them. They believe that a righteous person would not do that. And what's quite ironic is that these scribes of the Pharisees, they were just as spiritually sick as the tax collectors and sinners, but these guys, don't, they don't see it. They are like totally blind to it. They were self-righteous, seeking to attain a right standing with God through their own doing. They don't see themselves as particularly sinful. In fact, they probably see themselves somewhere on a grid where we're up here, like pretty righteous. And everybody else, especially these guys, they're way down here. They didn't see themselves as sinful, but probably good, better than those around them. Maybe you too are a sinner and you're sick and you just don't see it that way. You do not see yourself as particularly sinful or maybe you think, well, I kind of am, but I'm better than most other people. Remember surprise number two, Jesus came so that hordes of sick sinners might be saved. The purpose of his coming, it has to do with people who are sinners. His usefulness, so to speak, is to people who are sinners. The Pharisees question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's Jesus' response. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Why is Jesus with tax collectors? Why is Jesus with sinners? Because that's why he came. Jesus came so that hordes of sick sinners might be saved. That's the explanation. That's why he's the friend of sinners, because he is the physician of the sick. Why do you see Jesus with sinners? Well, why do you see a doctor with sick people? That's Jesus' answer. For the same reason, you see a doctor with those who are sick. What do the words of verse 17 convey to us? I think they convey that Jesus can help you if you know that you're sick in sin. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous. People who think that they're good, but sinners. Jesus just described two different types of people. First, there are those who know that they are not well, and they know that they are sick. And they know that they are sinners. And second, there are those who believe that they are well. They're not sick. They're righteous. I'm good. I got this. Levi was very obviously in the first group. I mean, Jesus just looks at him. He's sitting in his tax booth. And Jesus looks at him. He says, follow me. And up Levi goes. He rises and off he goes after Jesus. The scribes of the Pharisees were in the second The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus diagnosed them both as sick. Both groups of people were sick unto death, terminally, eternally ill. They're all going to die. Levi, the scribes of the Pharisees, they're all going to die. And one day be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And Jesus explains for all to hear that he is the physician of the sick. Jesus can help and heal you if you know you're sick, but on the flip side of that coin, Jesus can't help you until you see your need. And we see the kindness of Jesus here because the very people who can't see their need, Jesus is trying to show them. 
based on what Jesus said in verse 17, as long as you think that you're well, you'll, you'll have no need for Jesus. If you think that you're righteous, you'll never be saved. Jesus calls sinners to salvation. He's the doctor, and he says that you are sick. So here's a question for you. What must you be to be saved? What must you be to enter the kingdom of heaven and dwell there with God for all eternity? Many people think, well, I must be good. And I must be righteous and I must be better than those around me or I must be reformed. I must change myself and make myself good. And Jesus says, no, absolutely not. What you must be in order to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus is quite quite clear, you must be a sinner. That's the qualification. That's what qualifies you for the grace of the great physician. The prerequisite for salvation is not righteousness, it's sinfulness. And so we'd ask, who's a candidate for heaven? The man that knows he's a sinner. The woman who knows that she's a sinner. You must realize that you're sick before the doctor is of any value to you. In order to be saved, there must be a recognition of your need. Righteousness cannot be attained, only received. And when Jesus looked Levi in the eyes and conveyed to him that he was sick, Levi acknowledged that and he listened to the doctor and he said, Yes, Lord, help me. The Pharisees, they just walk away. Maybe you found yourself on a waiting list to see a specialist or get in for surgery. That can be a frustrating experience trying to get in when you just kind of keep being told or get the idea that you're just not sick enough to be on the top of the list. You know, I mean, there's a lot, there, there are people who are way sicker than you. You're like number 200 on the list for that surgery. Awesome, right? You're just told to wait and keep waiting because you're not sick enough. Jesus says, listen, you're sick enough. Well, you're, you're really sick. And it comes down to this. Will you or will you not agree with his diagnosis? Will you go, you're right, I'm sick. You're right, I'm a sinner. And when you realize that you are indeed sick enough, then the great physician stands ready to forgive. There's no lineup. There's not like, hey, you're number 200 in the queue. The great physician stands ready to forgive, cleanse, and save. And some people are blind to their own condition and others see it. Jesus in his kindness is trying to point out to you, he's trying to hold up a mirror and show you, you are sick and I can save you if you'll let me. Jesus came so that hordes of sick sinners might be saved. Jesus is trying to tell you something. He's trying to remind everybody of something, and that is that you are sick and that your sin is a problem and you need the forgiveness and cleansing that only Jesus can provide. And I think looking at this text, it would be appropriate for me to just remind you, if you're sitting here and maybe your eyes are opening and you're going, oh, I think I get it now. I think I'm seeing it actually, that I'm a sinner and Jesus came to save me. How do you respond to that? Well, Levi gives us this great example. 
essentially he's acknowledging I do have a problem. What I'm doing here, where I'm sitting, this is not okay. But Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my master. Here I am. Save me. Make me new. And maybe you're sitting here and you know you're a sinner and I just want to encourage you to pray something very simple to Jesus. Jesus, I see that I'm a sinner. Will you cleanse me? And will you save me? And will you do for me exactly what you did for Levi? And he will. Many of you sit here and you have known that joy. You have been forgiven and cleansed. Maybe you think back to a date or time when that happened. Or maybe, maybe you can't pinpoint the time, but you know that it happened. You know that there was a day when you were still in your sin and Jesus saved you and he cleansed you and he made you new. And he became your Lord and Master. For those of you in that category today, big point, Jesus came to save sinners. And therefore, he expects us to participate in that. We can't do the saving. But Christ is giving us a pattern to, be, to follow. And the pattern that we see should be the pattern that we do. And we could ask ourselves questions like this. You could ask yourself this. Do you love sinners? Like, really? Do you love and care about sinners? What is your disposition towards people who are sinners? Are you appalled? Here, here's the fact of the matter from this text. Self-righteous people are the ones who tend to be appalled. People who think that they have it together are the ones that tend to look down their nose at, at other people who are sinners and be appalled. When you're overwhelmed by your own sinfulness, it's interesting, Levi's not appalled by all of his old tax buddies because he knows that just yesterday, that's exactly who he was. Come to my house. Let me introduce you to Jesus. You, you need to meet him. You need to know him. When you're overwhelmed by your own sinfulness, it's really hard to look down your nose at other people and consequently go, that was me not too long ago and Jesus has changed my life and God could do it for that person. And we move towards people with the gospel, not away from them. I think it's important to remember as well that the gospel doesn't start with self-righteous people. Uh, the door, so to speak, into the kingdom of heaven is not a door called self-righteousness. So if the gospel does not start with self-righteous people, nor does it make us into self-righteous people, that's just not how it works. The gospel will never lead you to that disposition. Uh, when churches get stuffy, the gospel was not the road that led them there. <laughs> when, when people come to church and, and they're all high and mighty and pious and... The gospel never got people there. And so when churches become stuffy places with people who think that they're better than everybody else and judging and looking down their noses at other people, it was not the gospel that led those people there. How could it? It's just not what the gospel does. In fact, the, the more that we understand the gospel, if anything, I mean, it just rips the stuffiness right out of our lives. Because... We, we trust Christ as our Savior, and then we open up the pages of his word, and we start to understand the gospel more and more and better and better. And 
we see the depth of our sin even clearer. And that, that is a perpetually humbling experience. The gospel does not lead us to pride. It leads us to humility. And that should be uh, really the culture that we have here at Beaumont Baptist Church. That people, people don't sit here and go, oh, I'm better than this person, or look what that person did over there. And all of our, our sin and our struggle just goes underground. It gets buried under, under deep, deep, deep down somewhere. And it never comes to the surface where it can be confessed and dealt with because every, oh, people, what will people think? The gospel just never leads us to that. We marvel at the gospel and Jesus and his forgiveness. And what it ought to produce in our church is a culture where we all recognize we're sinners and the church becomes a safe place to tell other people and even before the Lord to say, I have sinned. And in fact, I need help. Will you help me? Because we're family and we're all sinners who've been saved by the grace of God. The gospel just never leads us to this place where our sin is just all goes underground and we all pretend like we're good. The gospel doesn't do that. Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners. And we have this cool picture where Jesus is feasting in the house of Levi with all these sinners. And it, it really portrays the day that is coming when Jesus will feast for all of eternity with saved, washed, cleansed sinners in the kingdom of heaven. That day is coming. And the people that Jesus will dine with for all eternity are not people who think that they've got it together. They are sinners who Jesus saved and transformed into saints by his grace. I want to invite you to bow with me and perhaps we can praise the Lord together in a moment.